Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Let's go to Philippians. We're going to read a few verses from the letter to the Philippians. So once again, if you would please stand up and that's good for you. (laughs) Let's read verse 12 first and then we jump to chapter 2, verse 25. So chapter 1, verse 12, Philippians. Paul says, I want you to know what? Brothers. Now chapter 2. Verse 25, I had thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers. And we can go on, but that's good for now. You may be seated. There is more, and you will see. Let's ask the Lord's blessing once again. Father, we come before You because we need Your help. We pray because we know our dependence on You. Deliver us from praying just for praying's sake. But help us to understand that we need to pray. We need to cry out to You. That's the way You have ordained to work out Your plans. We pray that you would be helping us. Let your Holy Spirit work in us. I pray that your Spirit would be empowering me. Less of me, more of you. The same for the congregation. Less of all of us and more of you. Sharpen our minds. We pray for your church here in Salem. We pray they'll be blessing your churches. Pray that your people will be growing in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ today. We also pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world. Bless your church. Brothers and sisters in Canada who are being persecuted, we pray they'll be strengthening them. In Nigeria, in the Middle East, Bless your people. We stand upon the promise that we will suffer, and through this suffering, your church will prevail. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 2015, 2015, the Pew Research Center, they published a research entitled The The American Family Today. The American Family Today. That was... I think about five, six years ago, so the decline is even worse now. It says, family life is changing. Two-parent households are on the decline in the United States as divorce, remarriage, and cohabitation, better translated fornication, right, are on the rise. And families are smaller now, both due to the growth of single-parent households and the drop in fertility. Not only are Americans having fewer children, but their circumstances surrounding parenthood have changed. 
While in the early 1960s, babies typically arrived within a marriage, today, fully four in ten births occur in women who are single or living with a known marital partner. At the same time, the family structures have transformed. So has the role of mothers in the workplace and in the home. As a result of these changes, there is no longer one dominant family form in the U.S. Parents today are raising their children against a backdrop of increasingly diverse and, for many, constantly evolving family forms. Three thoughts came to my mind as I was reading this article and think about the American family. First, we can see clearly how the institution of family has been severely attacked by Satan and the world system. That's just clear to see how the institution of family has been severely attacked by Satan. That's the first clear observation. Second, family, family is ordained by God, created by God to point to something greater. And that's God's family. Family is not for the sake of family, but family is always pointing to what? To a relationship with the Father through the Son. That's very important. A family is composed of a man and a woman who gets married. And marriage is ordained by God and instituted by God to point to a greater reality. Not marriage for marriage's sake, but marriage for the sake of the gospel, pointing to the reality of Jesus and His people. That's very important. Third, though the American family has been changing, and I would label as devolving instead of evolving, God's family will not change. The American family might change, is changing and will change, but God's family will not change. The church will not change. The church is the only institution that has the promise of victory. I'm with you always. To the end of the days, I'll be with you. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So though family might be changing, devolving, transforming, the church will continue conquering the family of God. Amen? And that's what we see today as we are working through Philippians. The family of God. The church as the family of God. And the great blessings and victory that we have there. Last Lord's Day, we have been looking, we finished studying Philippians Verse by verse, now we are looking at some of the major themes and tracing throughout the letter and then applying to our church. Last Lord's Day, we saw a biblically structured church. So we saw how a local church is supposed to be composed of biblically structured leaders and biblically formed members. That's what we saw last Lord's Day. And today we're going to be looking at the family. The church as the family of God. And next Lord's Day, you're going to be looking at the militant church. The church as the army of Christ. All flowing from Philippians. Here's the outline. We're going to first look at a theology of God's family. A theology of God's household. 
Then you're going to be looking at the Philippians as a church family. And then finally, the gospel reflected in the church family. So let's go to a theology of God's family. And we saw in verse 12 of chapter 1 how Paul addresses the Philippians as brothers. At least nine, nine times in Philippians, Paul addresses Christians as brothers and brothers and sisters. And, and because of the gigantic cultural and religious gap that there is between us today and Christians in the first century, it's easy for us to miss how jaw-dropping was for Paul to call those Gentiles brothers and sisters. So because of this gigantic gap between our culture, our society, even religious background, we cannot realize how shocking that would be in the first century for Christians, Jews and Gentiles, to be treating one another as brothers and sisters. And in our culture, especially the men, we, we, a lot of times we call other men, Hey brother, what's up bro? And in reality we have no relationship with that person. There is no intimate relationship. And yet we call each other bro, brother, in a very superficial manner, right? But there is absolutely nothing superficial in the Bible when it talks about Christians being brothers and sisters. There is absolutely nothing superficial. I'll go farther and say that as we look at history of mankind, from the moment that there was the fall, from after the fall of Adam, whole history is moving to the adoption of God's children into His family. There is the inauguration with Christ and there is the consummation when Christ returns. So let me just give you a brief biblical view of God's family. So we could go back to creation and we must go back to creation. And we see in Genesis that God, the all-transcendent, the almighty triune God, creates the world to be His household. The, the description of creation is a description of the building of a temple. And the temple is God's household because that's where He dwells. So God is building His house. Eden is the fellowship room. That's where man and God have communion. That's how it is presented to us in Genesis. Adam and Eve are created to occupy the house. To have a relationship and dwell in His presence. And the relationship was to be one, just like Dan said earlier, a royal family. Adam and Eve, Adam, a son of God, a royal descendant, was supposed to, be fellow, to have fellowship with his father in the Garden of Eden. Eden, the main fellowship room in the house, was to expand as Adam and Eve would multiply Increase, be fruitful, and have many image bearers of God. So that Eden was supposed to grow. The living room was supposed to expand with many sons and daughters reflecting the glory of God. But we come to Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. Man falls from the state of 
a wonderful relationship with God the Father. But the fall severely, drastically breaks the glorious access to the presence of God. The ability to dwell in the house of God is no longer available to mankind. Do you remember what happens to Adam and Eve? Can they dwell in Eden? No, they're kicked out of God's house. And the gates are closed and guarded. No longer access. All the sons of Adam are born outside God's family. As Paul tells us, we are born as aliens and strangers with respect to God's household. But the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that in the midst of all the brokenness and judgment of sin, our gracious God comes with the gospel. The promise that a male seed, a son, would come and undo what Adam had done. That's the beauty of the gospel. A male seed, masculine seed, a son would come. A greater son of God would come and restore what Adam had destroyed. The son would bring many sons to glory, to dwell in God's family once again, thus building God's household once again. As we keep moving throughout Genesis, we see man departing from God's presence further and further until we come to one man. Genesis 12. Who is that man? Abram. And it's interesting how Abram is described and God dealing with Abram. And God calls Abram to leave what? His family. Leave his family, yes. He has been adopted by God. He has a new family now. And God promised that it's going to be through Abraham's seed, his son, that this son of God would come. And it's very fascinating, as I was reading Abraham and the account, the first, one of the first things that we are told about Abraham is that he goes to a place called Bethel, or as People like to say in English, Bethel. Beit, house, El, God, Bethel, house of God. And in this place, in the house of God, you have a son and his father having fellowship. And we are told that Abraham offers an offering to the Lord. Implies the fellowship between a father and a son there in the house of God. One of Abraham's descendants, Jacob, who becomes the nation of Israel, also known as the house of Israel, the family of Israel. Also, in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream. Remember, Jacob has the pillow as a stone, and he has the dream. And what is that dream? A temple. A temple connecting heaven and earth. And God dwelling with him, and God brings that covenantal promise made to Abraham once again to Jacob and Jacob names that place what? Surely God is in this place. And he names that place Bethel, the house of God. The house of God. God's continuing his covenant promise to bring the Son even through a deceiver like Jacob. 
as we keep moving, we learn the, the descendants of Jacob, Israel, is adopted by God. The Lord, Yahweh, tells Pharaoh, let my firstborn, let my firstborn, as Israel is taking the place of Adam, take my first, let my firstborn go. So if Adam is God's son by creation, Israel is God's son by what? Adoption. And we know that this adoption was by grace alone. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 16, where Ezekiel plays with the metaphors, he, he, he talks about adoption and he moves to marriage. But as he's beginning, chapter 16, talking about adoption and how Israel, the nation of Israel, was adopted by Yahweh, it says, the Lord talks about Israel's parents, pagans, Gentiles. And the Lord says, And when I saw you, you were no cute little baby. I see Jeremiah, a cute little baby right there. Look at that, smiling. And the Lord says, you are no cute little baby. Actually, your umbilical cord had not even been cut. Nobody took care of you. You're wrapped in blood. You're an ugly, dying baby. And I adopted you by grace. That's what the Lord says. And then God chose to make His dwelling place with Israel. The tabernacle and the temple are called the house of God. Why? Because that's where God dwells with His people. And you think about the sacrifices. The sacrifices are meals where the high priest representing the nation is having a meal, a fellowship meal with God, with the Father in God's house. Jesus refers to the temple as the Father's what? The Father's house. The Lord also adopts the Davidic king as his son. Remember, the covenant with David. And a Davidic king, a son from the line of David, will become God's son. God's son is coming from the line of David. And the Lord promises that he will... Remember, David wants to build a temple to the Lord. He wants to build a house to the Lord. And the Lord says, no, 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 I'm building you a house, a family, a dynasty. I do the work here. But like Adam, Israel failed, broke their covenant with the Lord. Like Adam, Israel has no longer access to the house of God. They are in exile. They are de deported from Jerusalem. No longer temple access. No longer fellowship in the Father's house. Just like Adam. From the beginning of his adoption, Israel has been showing themselves to be disobedient to their father, rebellious, grumbling, arguing. And then later becomes a divided family after David and Solomon. The kingdom, the family splits, and a divided house cannot endure. All this was leading and pointing to the coming of the Son of God, the last and better Adam, the true Israel, who would build the true and everlasting household of God, thus bringing many sons to glory. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the announcement that in Jesus and through Christ, men and women who were once children of the devil, men and women who were children of wrath, now because of the Son, 
they can be adopted into God's family and have fellowship with God once again. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. So you can trace from Genesis to the end. Because in the end, in, Apoc- in Revelation, Apocalypse, what, what do we have? Men and God dwelling once again. The Father and His kids in a garden-like temple. Ian Duguid, he says, The twin themes of the adoption of Israel and the line of David find a common fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In His divine nature, Christ is God's Son from all eternity. Yet, as the true Israel and the true Son of David, He is the heir of all the promises of sonship made to Israel and to David. And I'll go back even farther. All the promise of sonship made to Adam and Eve and to Abraham. As a result, when we are united to Christ by faith, we too receive a share in that sonship and the privilege that go along with it. As the Apostle John says, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. See, sometimes people say, some zealous people in reform circles say, the Bible never talks about receiving Jesus, accepting Jesus, right here. To all who did accept Him, receive Him. But there is an order, right? We receive Him because He first received us. But to all who did receive Him, the Son, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Our adoption as sons of God thus comes through union with Christ and cannot be experienced apart from it. In Christ and in Him alone, we receive the adoption that gives us an undeserved share in the promises that were made to Him and the privileges that He has earned as God's Son. Indeed, the reason that Christ came to this earth was so that He might give us adoption as God's sons. Galatians 4, 5. And that's very important. So when you see Paul calling Christians brothers and sisters, he's tracing back this whole massive theology from creation to consummation. So for example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, starting verse 12, Ephesians 2, Remember, remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressing ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new uh, Adam, one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit, to the Father. That's the Gospel. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the what? The family, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Remember, the temple is God's house in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, don't ever take lightly. Don't ever take lightly when the Bible, especially Paul, over a hundred times he calls other Christians brothers and sisters. There is this massive theology that from, from the moment there was the fall, we lost sonship. We are no longer in a relationship with God. And in need of a son who would come and bring us back to the Father. So, the church is no superficial, trivial, trivial thing. People treat the church very superficially. There's absolutely no superficiality in God's mind. Think about that. From the moment of creation, God was building a house to live with His, with His people. Sin destroys that, and He keeps moving forward in His grace, in His mercy, in His power to bring sons and daughters to live with Him. And that's the church. Paul, in First Timothy 3, we saw that last Lord's Day. Paul says, verses 14 through 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave where? In the household, in the family of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. I like John Calvin. He comments here. He says, there are good reasons for why God should call the church His house. For not only He has received us as His sons by the grace of adoption, but He Himself dwells in the midst of us. So let us never forget these people here. These people here. That's the family of God. These people here who are part of this church. You are the family of God. God has been working throughout history to bring us together and put us as members of His family. Don't ever treat lightly the local church. The local church is the theater where God displays His glory and where we get a glimpse of the universal church. It's a family of God that He bought with His own blood. So, with this in mind, we can say with all boldness that the church is God's household and not Caesar's household. The church does not belong to the government. The government has no business in telling the church what to do. That's God's house. Not Caesar's house. Sadly, many Christians have been allowing the state and government to take over the church, dictate how church should behave, how church members should behave. 
heartbreaking. That's not the government's house. The church is God's family. They state it's God's servant. And when possible, we should strive to work together as institutions, help one another. But the more we see that's getting harder and harder for the church and the state to work together in serving Christ. So that's very important. We honor, we pray for Governor Brown, President Biden, but they are not in charge of the church. They have no business telling the church what to do and how to do things. That's God's household. Amen? So we can think about the letters of the New Testament, basically all the exhortations in the letters of the New Testament, similar to household rules, household guidelines, how Christians are supposed to behave in the house of God. So that's one, one way of seeing the exhortations in the New Testament. All the letters are basically God teaching us how we are to behave in His household. Why? Because it's His house. You don't come to my house and tell my family what to do. Right? The same way I'm not going to your house and tell your family what to do. Unless, of course, you profess to be a Christian and you're living a pagan life, a hidden life, we're going to rebuke you and tell you what the Bible tells you to do. When it comes to the church, we let God direct and dictate how we are to do worship. Amen? So, everything we do here in this church is grounded in our conviction of the Scriptures, what the Bible is teaching us. There were things that we used to do and we stopped doing because we could not see clearly in the Scriptures as God endorsing that. That's very important because we see churches doing whatever they want. As if God had no sovereignty over that place. One scholar, he writes, and that's important to see the Greco-Roman culture of families and household. He says, the Greco-Roman household consisted of different groups, duties, and responsibilities. Very similar to the church. And in larger, in, in larger homes, the stewards were given authority to see that each did her or his share so that the master's purpose might be achieved. The concept of household with its associated notions of interdependence, acceptable conduct, and responsibility was so strong that Paul could borrow it to illustrate the nature of the church. It too, it also, both then and now, is made of different groups, men and women from every level of society, parents and children, employers, employees, who must depend upon and in love serve one another and it's the task of the stewards, the bishops, the elders, deacons, to ensure that the household accomplishes the master's goal. Just like in any healthy family, all the members have duties and responsibilities, right? If you have members in your house who don't have duties and responsibilities, they're going to be overburdening others. And they're not teaching them the right thing. So the same thing with the church. Every member has his own duty and responsibility as it comes to the church. So, in light of all this, we can move to the Philippians. The Philippians as the church family. And we can see, and now I have the references for 
Paul addressing Christians as brothers in Philippians. So one twelve, I want you to know I want you to know brothers. One fourteen and most of the brothers. Two twenty five, I had thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. Three one, finally my brothers. Three thirteen, brothers. Three seventeen, brothers. Four one, therefore my brothers whom I love. Four eight, finally, brothers. Four twenty one, the brothers who are with me greet you. And that's so vital for us to realize that Paul is not using vain repetition. Paul, you need to work on this mannerism of yours. Always saying brothers, brothers. By God's grace, I have people who help me. Because speaking in public is a very difficult thing. So some beloved brothers and sisters, they come and help me. And they say, oh, you have been saying this word too much. Oh, thank you. I need to pay attention to this. And sometimes we think that's what Paul is doing. The repetition of brothers, brothers, brothers. Just mannerism. Paul, you've got to stop. No, 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 no. It's flowing from a theological understanding where he is in the story of God. And how God has adopted him and brought others into his family. And these Gentiles now are his brothers and sisters. So that's flowing from a heart that understands the gospel. Not of a man who is just repeating vain words. Amen? Sometimes it's easy for us to think that Paul is just... He can't think about other words, so let's just say brothers. Right? And sometimes you see that in churches too. People... He used the, the word brother in a very superficial manner. May the Lord deliver us from this. I hope we have an understanding as we are going through this beautiful book here. So, I just want to give you five, looking at Philippians, five practical applications as related to the church family in Philippi and applying that to our church family here in Salem, Oregon. First of all, first application. There must be an intimate, a close relationship between the members of the local church. So in light of the truth that the church is God's household, each local church is to reflect this truth by the way that the members behave and treat one another. There must be an intimate, close relationship between the members of the church. It's heartbreaking to see Christians who are part of the same church and they don't even know each other. You go to the same church that I go. Whoa! Can you imagine in a household, family members coming to a table and, Who are you? I've never saw you here before. So there must be this intimate, this close relationship between the members. Knowing each other's needs. Knowing each other's joys. And that's what we see throughout Philippians. Paul is informing them, I want you to know, brothers. The brothers in Philippi know that Paul is being afflicted, so they send an offering to Paul. There is mutual knowledge, concern, knowing each other's needs and joys. And there must be that in a local church to be a family. And imagine in a household, after ten days, Somebody says, hey, little Johnny, one of the brothers, 
It has been in his room for 10 weeks. With fever. Probably dead by now. But you see, that, that's strange, right? By no means that would happen. But then, that's okay in the church. Nobody cares about each other's needs, joys. So, and we see throughout the letter to the Philippians, as a family, you're supposed to know when family members are missing, sick, happy, sad, prospering, suffering. Mutual responsibility. You have the responsibility of letting others know, and we have the responsibility of seeking information for each other. Amen? Now, sometimes people, uh, they don't tell anybody about what's going on in their lives, and then they get upset, sad, and angry that nobody cared for them. Please let us know. Help us. And we want to help. But we also need to go after. How are you? How are you doing? Do you need anything? So there must be this mutual seeking to find out about each other's joys and happiness, needs. So the members of this local church are to be a priority in your life. And that's completely countercultural. To say that the members of your church must be a priority in your life. By no means. And the Word of God says, yes, by all means. Look at Paul says, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to all, but especially to those of your local church. The household of faith, Paul is applying here to the church in Galatia. Second, the church is to be marked by deep affection between the members of the family of God. The church is to be marked by deep, not superficial, deep affection between the members of the family of God. And that's what we see throughout this letter. It's beautiful how the letter opens and closes with Paul showing his affection to the Christians in Philippi. So, for example, he says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, verse 3 and 4, and I think you have in the overview, the projector, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayers with joy. Oh, it's right for me to have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God's my witness, how I long, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's how he opens the letter. And then he closed the letter in chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown. And by doing that, Paul is teaching them that's how they are supposed to feel and see each other. To have the same affection. Paul is setting an example. The affection that I have for you, there must be between the members of this church also. Longing for one another. That's interesting. Sometimes people talk, you ask people, how was the church? What did you like about the church service? Very rare you hear people saying, I love the church service because of the affection. 
Because I was able to show my affection to my brothers and sisters. Have you ever heard anybody saying that? How was service today? It was wonderful. I was longing to see Dan and Susan. Hannah. I was able to see them. It was wonderful. We don't, we don't hear that. Often people complaining about the music, complaining about the preaching, or just talking well about the preaching. Or we never hear people saying, How was church? How was the service? It was glorious. I was able to see the people who I love the most. How could that go bad? In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul, Paul uses a very ambiguous construction. As, as he has them in his heart and they have Paul in his heart, there is mutual longing to be with each other. Sadly, sadly, so many don't have this longing for other church members. Some of you are satisfied with coming, spending two hours here on Sunday and never seeing one another again throughout the week. That's heartbreaking. Satisfied. It's a little time together. Paul says, I yearn for you. I long for you. You can imagine, tell your wife, I'm good seeing you once a week. That's good for two hours. That's how much I long and yearn for you. Sadly, heartbreaking. Some Christians are like that. Sunday for two hours. Rest of the week, they don't see anybody from the church. They spend time with anybody. No longing, no yearning, no affections of Christ. Also, you hear Christians say, oh, I can't wait to move and go to the woods. Be far away from people. Go to the mountains. That's bizarre. A Christian one who longs to be with God's people. You want to move to a place where there is no church, nobody to serve, to love, to share your joys. On the other hand, you hear people complaining, there is no church in town. There is no church in town. Maybe there is no church in town. Maybe you need to move out of that town. Why don't you move out of there and go to a place where there is a good church? <coughs> I have work. I have property. Tell us what's important in your life. People move in search of jobs, school, weather. But then when it comes to moving, because you need to find a healthy church, people are un unwilling to be with God's people. Three, there will always be tension and hurts in God's household until the final eradication of all sin from our lives when Jesus comes back again. So, let's stand on every promise of God. Amen? We are singing that. That's a promise. We will not be completely sinless in this life. Therefore, we will sin and we will hurt one another. As in any form of true relationship, you will hurt. You will be hurt by other Christians. 
As with any healthy household, there is conflict, tension, and frustration at times. But what do you do? What do you do when you have conflict in your house? Go and lock yourself in your bedroom to never see anybody again? No, if you're mature, you're going to deal with that. You work it out. We need to talk. The same with the church. Talking, being patient, repenting, asking for forgiveness, forgiving one another as Christ forgave us. We don't run away. Right? Don't do that. So we see in Philippians chapter 4, I don't know if I have here. Yeah. Philippians chapter 4, we see clearly that there are problems in a very healthy church. The church in Philippi is extremely healthy. And yet, they have issues between the members. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and Suntuhe, or Sintiki, to agree in the Lord. Why? To have the same mindset, because they are not having. There is disagreement. Division. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, and remember, when I preach this passage, I believe he's talking to the whole church, the yoke fellow. Help these women. Help these women. So you have an issue in the church, and all the members of the family are called to help the two sisters. The whole church is supposed to help. We have a duty and privilege of helping brothers and sisters when they are in disagreement with one another. You don't go when you see or hear a member complaining or or having an issue with another member. You don't go and add more wood to that fire. You go with the water that's flowing from God's throne, full of love, and you throw there. No, 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 we need need to deal with this thing here. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians and us. Listen to this, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, In a spirit of gentleness. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Doesn't say, go get the elders quickly. Go get the pastors. No, you you have a duty and responsibility to go. You have seen, you're looking at this person and he's committing a transgression. You go to that person. And he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not only that, in Philippians chapter 2, we see some problems in the church. And we hear Paul saying, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Why would Paul be telling them to do everything without grumbling and complaining? Because certainly there has been grumbling and complaining in that church. And you know how horrible and awful it is to be in a house where there is grumbling, murmuring between members. Have you ever been to a house and you can see that the environment there, the tension is in the air? One grumbling about the other, complaining about the other arguing with each other in front of you. 
Do you feel like staying there? Say, hey, I'll be back another time here. It becomes awkward, awful. And the same in the church. And you have this type of grumbling, murmuring in the household of God. Grumbling, arguing are two ferocious beasts that devour the life in community. And you can see that one of the great enemies that the Philippians are facing is the enemy within. The battle against selfishness and grumbling against each other, complaining. Even the word, I don't know if you remember the Greek word for grumbling, gongusmos. It's an ugly. Even the sound is like a gongusmos in Greek. It's just kind of nasty. And you know when it's taking place in the church, when people start going to one another and complaining about another person, grumbling about something instead of dealing with that situation. And that's never healthy in a family. And Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent. What? Ah, children of God. Sons and daughters of God. Now you need to reflect your paternity. You have been adopted by God. And you need to reflect this because in the triune God, there is no murmuring, there is no grumbling. You don't see the father grumbling about the son. You don't see the son complaining about the father in the Trinity, do you? And the same with us. We are to imitate our father. That's what Paul is telling us. And reflects who our father is. And grumbling, murmuring, complaining, arguing reveals also the paternity. Satan's children. Because Satan has been a murmurer, a complainer since the beginning. Therefore, his children are always grumbling, complaining. So look at our society. Look at our society. Whose children are they? Always complaining, always arguing, always grumbling. Always fighting. Never satisfied. Children of the devil. And the church is supposed to be different. That's why people should come to church and not be hearing people complaining and arguing and murmuring about the government, about this, about that. No, we are supposed to be different. Fourth. There must be faithful examples of godly character in God's household. Just like in any family, you want the younger ones to follow the example of whom? The older ones. And the older ones are to be setting the example for the younger ones. So this week was really key. We saw Apollo with a rag scrubbing the floor. He had dropped something. Do you know why he was doing that? Because he saw... Someone older than him doing that, cleaning when dropped something on the floor. And the same thing, that's what Paul has been saying throughout Philippians. So you can check with me, Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 17. Brothers, join imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then in chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen me, practice these things. So, 
Throughout the letter, Paul is showing himself as an example. He commands them to imitate him. He shows Timothy, he shows Epaphroditus as good examples to be followed after. And there is the command. And then you think about God's household. We have a perfect father to follow his example. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. To walk in love just like God the Father. We have the perfect oldest brother, Jesus Christ, the firstborn, to follow his example. So you have no excuse. Amen? I didn't have a father. Have you been adopted into God's family? You have the best father. You have the best father. And then inside the church, you don't have perfect examples, but you have faithful examples. Imperfect, but faithful examples. Fathers, mothers who follow Christ, brothers, sisters. And that's exactly what Paul tells uh, in Titus. So we can go there to Titus chapter 2 really quickly. Titus chapter 2. And the requirement for all the members of God's household to be an example to one another. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. That's the mother's role in ancient times. And now it's been passed into the church ladies, the older ladies. And let me tell you, if you're in a church and there's anybody younger than you, you should be living as one who is a mom in Christ, setting an example. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, holy, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So, examples. In a household and in God's household, there must be faithful examples. And I pray and I hope that you all are striving to be faithful replicas to the younger ones. Amen? No excuse here. Number five, last one. And there are privileges in being part of God's household. There are many privileges, and that's what we have been seeing throughout Philippines. So many blessings. Of course, the most special blessing is the blessing of being part of God's house and have fellowship with the Father through the Son and powered by the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest blessing of all, to be able to have relationship with the Father. But there are so many other blessings, so many other privileges. We are taken care. We are served. We are taught. We are instructed. We are loved. We have the privilege of serving, giving, partaking of the Lord's Supper. And when we are fulfilling God's duties, remember His promises to us? Look at chapter 4. When the household is following his guidelines, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, if that's not enough, and the God of peace will be with you. He promises. As the family members are obeying Him, trusting Him, loving Him, loving one another, caring for one another, He says, My shalom will guard you. My peace will guard my household. And have we not been experiencing this? He is gracious to us. He works in us. We work out our salvation in humility. We serve Him. And He protects us. He guards us with His peace. So, just a footnote. Here you see the importance of formal membership in a local church. That's how vital it is. Formal membership in a local church. And that's something strange today, alien, kind of offensive to require formal membership. Are you kidding me? Well, let me ask you. If somebody knocks on your door, Rick and Sarah, just somebody knocks on your door and says, Hey, I'm your son. I'm here to stay. Backpack, car leaking oil outside your, <laughs> your door. Like, sorry, I don't know you. That's not how it works. Not any girl who comes to my house that I'm going to just bring her into my table and treat her as my daughter. There is a process if you're going to bring someone into your home. Amen? But isn't that sad that people do that in the church? People just show up and the others start treating as members. How do you know that that person is truly a child of God, willing to be involved with this household and serve this household? Also teach us how one is to leave God's household. The easiest and most normal thing in our day is people to just walk away from the church. I'm not happy here. I'm just walking away from this church. Can you do that in a family? You have some tension and you just walk away? Yes, if you are a coward, right? That's Cowards do that, run away. And then what happens when somebody else receives a runaway child? Without informing the authorities. What happens to a, to, to a family that just receives a runaway child and doesn't care if the parents are concerned, what's going on? They will be responsible. And that's how so many churches are. People show up, they don't care if they're running away. That's why we contact your former church. We try to find out where you're coming from, what's going on, why you're here. Amen? So it's all related to this beautiful aspect of the church as God's household. And last, that's the final point here. Before that, let me just, let me just, one more quote here. He says, uh, Philip Towner, he says, The effect of Paul's use of household imagery is to depict the people of God as God's household, a living and growing 
family, whose life together requires mutuality of service and care, recognition of responsibilities, and a sense of identity, belonging and protection. As a household, it would be understood that the community of God's people would be comprised of varieties of people, of people's roles and responsibilities, and that to function effectively, order would be needed to be maintained. My prayer is that we would, just like he says, a, a family growing, always growing, growing love, that we would see church as a family growing affection. Sometimes we think about church as the church building. We need to think of the church as the church family. Loving one another. So, finally, the last point. The gospel reflected in the church family. For me, this, this is one of the most precious verses in Philippians. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, he's talking about why he's sending Epaphroditus back. He says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all. Look at the affection of a church member towards his church. He has been longing, yearning for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's distressed because people now know that he's sick. And that's going to bring more concern to the church. So he's concerned that the church is going to be concerned about him. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on, mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. That's beautiful. Here is a man, remember chapter 3, when Paul is describing his pedigree before Christ? A Jew of the Jews. Oh, oh. His status as a Jew. And now he's getting this man, Epaphroditus. Maybe his name is derived from Aphrodite, the goddess. Who knows? A Gentile. And he says, my brother. My brother. The language of brother, first of all, Adelphos in Greek, was related to someone who shared the same womb. He came from the same womb. also was related for someone who was sharing the same paternity, was a brother. And lastly, the term brother was used also for similarity. So, Paul, oh, so Job can say that he's a brother of jackals. Do you remember? I'm a brother of jackals. Why? Because he's just being destroyed. He's just uh, a filthy beast, just like jackals were. His similarity. So you think about Paul now saying... About Epaphroditus, my brother. My brother. How can this man who was hated, hated with all his guts, Gentiles, now calling this Gentile my brother? What happened? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Paul and Epaphroditus... They come now from the same womb of God's grace and mercy. They share God's womb of grace and mercy. Paul looks at Epaphroditus and he sees in him the family likeness, the resemblance, not of physical resemblance, but the resemblance of Christ. There is the blood of Christ flowing in both veins. So he can say, my brother, why? 
Because He is just like me. He's just so similar to me. You look at Paul and you see a man who loves the church, who gives himself to the church, and you look at Paphroditus and what do you see? A man who loves the church and gives himself to the church. That's why Paul says, my brother. We share similarity, we share the same womb, we share the same Father through Jesus. And it's only, only the gospel of Jesus that has the power to unite people. Only the gospel has the power to unite white and black, red and yellow. I don't know why I say yellow. Usually yellow is when you're really sick, right? I remember going to the doctor the last time. I was yellow. looked like some really bad sickness. But yeah, brown and red, whatever. Only the power of the gospel. Bring together North Koreans and South Koreans, Japanese and Chinese, Indians and Pakistanis, Syrians and Israelites, poor and rich, educated and uneducated, Brazilians and Argentinians, Americans and Canadians. Only the gospel has the power to unite these people with affection. Amen? No social reparation, social justice can do that. No. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel of Jesus, we are removed from the family of Adam, removed from under the domain and paternity of Satan, and we are transferred to the family of Jesus. God is our Father. That's why Paul says, my brother, not just a brother, but my brother. There is a profound fraternal affection between them. So much love, so much affection between them, that Paul says, God had mercy not only on him, but God had mercy on me. Because if Epaphroditus died, I would be drowning in sorrow. That's how they love each other. When the scholar says, Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross binds believers together more tightly than DNA could ever do. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul rejoices in that union. And let me tell you, sometimes you hear people say, Oh, this church is just like family. Wrong. The church is family. Oh, I love that church. Just like a family. No, 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 no. The church is the family of God. It is the family. And my relationship with you are much tighter, much closer than with my earthly, my earthly family. And it's when Christians live in light of this truth that we shine the true light of Christ into this dark, divisive, hostile, segregated, unloving, selfish world. It's when people see affection, true affection between church members. Have you noticed that? Some of your family members start asking you. Some people at work start asking you, why are you always talking about your church? Why every time you're going to do something, you invite people from your church? Why instead of family things, you're going to be with your church? I know I'm not the only one who have heard that. And that's a great opportunity. The door is wide open just to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Here's why I love being with my church. And you tell the gospel. You tell the gospel story. How Christ saved you. How from in Adam you lost your paternity. And everyone outside Christ has no, no loving, gracious father and family like we do. Suddenly, 
We start seeing the educated with the uneducated, the rich and the poor. People with very different backgrounds, different colors of skin, different hobbies. All loving one another, spending time with one another, living and dying for one another, sacrificing for each other. And what, do you know what's most fascinating? There is no material gain in return. That's what's shocking. And that's when people start just... I want a family like that. I want a family like that. And you talk about the love of the Father. How the Father loves to adopt children to His household. And how Jesus loves to go into Satan's household and take children from Satan's domain and bring it to the domain of the Father. And then His arms are open. Just run to Him. Run to Him. He's ready to put garments upon you. Adopt you. That's the gospel. And then we join our voices with the Apostle John and say, How great is the love of the Father that He's lavished on us. Wow. What? What is the demonstration of the love of the Father? We have bigger houses? Bigger savings? We can travel more? And he says, how great is the love of the Father that He has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then He just bursts. And that's what we are, children of God. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your love and Your care towards us. Thank You for Your plan of adoption, salvation, redemption. Thank You for this church. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for sending Your Son, the Son of God, the better Adam, the true Israel. Thank You for the Holy Spirit that seals the adoption, that causes us to love the Father and the Son. I pray that You do unite our hearts, Lord. Help us. We are Your household. We are Your family by Your grace. And we need Your help. When we hurt one another, when others hurt us, help us to be humble. Help us to be gracious. Enlarge our hearts to have more affection for one another. Help us to yearn, long for one another. Help us never to be satisfied with only Sundays. Deliver us from selfishness, Lord. So that so that we may show Your love to, to others, Your great work in our lives to the lost. All the glory be to Your name, Lord. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.